Hello and welcome to episode 28 of the Digital Sociology Podcast. Um, in this one, I'm talking to Michael Rosino um, about his new book and his research, which is based on analysis of online comment sections on uh, on newspapers uh, and specifically discussions around uh, drugs, drug policy and race and, and racism. Um, I'll get into more of that in detail in a few moments when I speak to Michael but just wanted to mention that this will be the last episode uh, for a little while at least um, I will hopefully be coming back with some more in the future uh, but that is uh, I, I will be taking a bit of a hiatus however in the next couple of weeks I will be launching a new series of my other podcast which is called the social theory podcast uh, in that I um, uh, talk to a different guest each week about um, a, a different uh, important social theorist um, so I'll be launching a, a new series of that very soon and you can uh, get that just by searching in your podcast uh, app or platform for the social theory podcast as usual I'm very happy to get any feedback or comments on the podcast uh, on my blog this is not a sociology.blog uh, on twitter where I'm at chris h till as well you can uh, follow and subscribe to the podcast uh, by searching for uh, digital sociology podcast in any of your uh, podcast apps and platforms as well so i'll see you at the end okay and today i'm here with michael rosino who is an assistant professor of sociology at malloy college in long island new york his teaching and research interests include race and ethnicity, political sociology, social movements, media and human rights. Um, and lots of those things will be coming into our discussion today. Um, his first book, published earlier this year, 2021, uh, is Debating the Drug War, Race, Politics and the Media. And that's what we'll be focusing on talking about today. So hi, Michael. Thanks for being here. Hi, Chris. Thanks a lot for having me. I'm excited to be here. Great, great. So uh, before we kind of really dive into this, I wonder if you could just tell me how you came to write this book. Uh, what were your kind of motivations behind it? Sure. Yeah. So I actually had the idea for this book. Um, it's been quite a while in the making. I want to say almost like 10 years. It's been kind of germinating uh, in my mind. Um for a long time, I've been really interested in the sort of paradoxes and hypocrisies of drug policy. Um, you know, I think oftentimes with, with many people that, that get either get into drug policy reform or are interested in uh, drug policy from sort of a human rights perspective, um, one of the things that I think becomes really glaring and obvious that, you know, people notice pretty early on is, is just that there is a pretty clear inconsistency in terms of how different substances are treated in terms of the different narratives around different substances. So I think, you know, a, a great uh, starting point that I, I'm sure a lot of a lot of uh, listeners can relate to is, for instance, you know, the difference between, let's say, how alcohol is is treated by many governments versus cannabis, um, given that, you know, I think most people would would uh, agree or observe that alcohol has a pretty high level of, of uh, potential for misuse, that it can lead to a lot of health problems, uh, you know, certainly public safety issues around um, drunkenness. And, uh, you know, it, it is widely accepted, you know, particularly where, where both of us are in the United States and, and the UK as, uh, you know, sort of this normalized, almost celebrated sort of uh, substance, whereas something like cannabis, which has, you know, sort of milder effects, uh, you know, it's, it's less correlated with substance misuse um, oftentimes. Um, is treated as, you know, this sort of dangerous public health menace that needs to be eradicated and policed. Um, and so those kind of questions, you know, even just thinking about those as a young person really sort of, I think, set the, the scene for me to really uh, be able to dive a little bit deeper into these questions around drug policy. Um, and then about five years ago, um, I had the opportunity to work on a project um, that 
was only intended to kind of be a smaller project, but um, I really wanted to do something with content analysis and media. I've always been fascinated by media depictions and how does uh, media correlate with public discussions? How do those discussions relate to policy? And so this question of the war on drugs, how are these uh, debates around drug policy playing out, particularly as, um, you know, more and more spaces are engaging in decriminalization and reform? Um, It just seemed like a really great and interesting topic to me. Um, So all of that came together, I think, in kind of a perfect way. I think I happened to be kind of in the right place at the right time with with this uh, idea, with a lot of the things that were going on around me. And, um, you know, with this opportunity, uh, writing my first book, I think, really gave me a, a deep sense of appreciation for what authors go through, because this book has been in the works for, you know, as an actual manuscript, about five years. Uh, been through a lot of editing and feedback. And I actually was recently looking at my original proposal, and I think it said something like it'll come out in 2016. So just to uh, be, you know, give listeners a sense of sort of like how the book process works. Um, but I think, it, you know, the book couldn't have come out at a better time, um, particularly around, uh, like I said, things that are taking place right now from racial justice activism being at the forefront of a lot of uh, media attention to um, a lot of drug policy reforms really taking shape. So, yeah, I'm excited that it came out when it did and, and to have this this opportunity uh, to, to you know, be part of the conversation. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's, I really enjoyed the book, by the way, and uh, I, I really liked the way that you were kind of analytically able to bring all those, all those things that you just mentioned together, but in this, yeah. but in this very kind of focused way, on a, in terms of empirically focused on a particular, you know, a kind of set of, uh, text that you were looking at. Um, so I just wanted to ask really, um, why did you focus on discourse in newspapers um, and online comment sections? Because that's the kind of, that's the, the sort of, I think the centre of your of your research is looking at uh, several kind of um, newspapers and then the, the comments, uh, the kind of below the line comments that, that we get below those. Why did you think that they would be a particularly useful source of data? Yeah, um, I mean, that's a good question. I think um, a big part of what really motivated me to go in that direction was, first of all, um, the types of questions I was asking. You know, originally, um, I had this idea that I wanted to study sort of like um, news, like television news originally was, was kind of a long ago way that I wanted to think about this. And there's so much great research out there from criminologists and sociologists looking at media representations in sort of televised news. Um, and it kind of seemed like, okay, well, that's there's there's quite a lot of that out there. And the logistics of that research, especially for like, um, you know, a, a graduate student, I'm, I'm, I have other projects going on. I, I wanted to really think about how I could do this in a more pragmatic way. And I started to think about um, just how much, I've seen um, over the past, you know, decade or so, or or the majority of my life, um, newspaper articles, discussions in even mainstream, um, large platform uh, newspapers like uh, the New York Times or the Guardian, um, really discussing and taking on this issue and thinking about, okay, well, I have, I will have access to all of this text. It'll tell me something about the really broad themes and frames. And I was I was able to capture about, um, you know, 30 years worth of uh, newspaper uh, using the uh, LexisNexis database. And that was that turned out to be such an interesting resource for looking at, um, you know, how the narratives have changed over time how, uh, you know, what are the the arguments that reformers or defenders of the status quo are making? Um, You know, it just ended up really being a great resource. But what it couldn't tell me was how is it that audiences are interacting with these uh, 
different framings that are taking place, these different narratives. Um, and so what I decided to do was look at Internet comments, um, which I think goes against the conventional wisdom of the Internet, uh, honestly. Um, but there were quite a few uh, papers that I had read that had, had discussed sort of, you know, how – uh, researchers can engage in audience reception of news media and particularly how it relates to things like how they form their social and political identities. Um, and that really got me thinking, kind of pulling more from sort of the cultural studies, um, the, the cultural studies sort of tradition of looking at things like, um, Resonance, looking at things like, um, you know, uh, Stuart Hall's model of, of media and audience reception and how that relates to identities. Um, I thought, you know, maybe there's something here that I can really dig my teeth into in terms of, of even explaining, you know, how do audiences respond to the different uh, frames and narratives. Um, and I even joke in the book, you know, this was about the best way I could come up with to do it that wouldn't involve a time machine and millions of dollars. And I could like go interview everyone who's ever, you know, read some of these newspaper articles. Um, I also think that it allowed me to kind of update the research and think about what it means for these conversations to be happening in these interactive digital platforms. It allowed me to kind of start to, to think about um, you know, so we do have these these narratives that that surprisingly were pretty consistent across time in newspapers, even after newspapers have been digitized. But now we have um, a much different sort of digital media economy that um, is shaped by all kinds of, of forces. But I think one of the ones that's perhaps most important and interesting is interactivity and audience participation. Um so it allowed me to get at that element as well. Um, unfortunately, what that meant was that I was spending a lot of time uh, reading Internet comments about uh, race and racism and about politics. Um, so I'm very glad that I was able to actually, you know, get a book out of this. Uh, not necessarily the best thing to do for, for someone's uh, mental health, but um I think that the more that sociologists and social scientists pay attention to these larger media ecosystems, larger platforms, and how they're shaping the way that people have these public conversations and engage with um, big-scale events and issues, the more we can have an understanding about, you know, what it means to live in a deeply media-saturated society, Um you know, and, and I and think we could even go very meta and say, you know, digital communication and digital media is so prevalent that we're doing it right now, uh, uh, you know. And I'm sure there are spaces where people could take this podcast, post it online, and, and comment on it. So that commentary aspect and how it's been opened up to more people um, was just another fascinating dimension that I was able to tap into by looking at comments sections. Yeah, that's a really fascinating point, actually, because, as you say, I, I, mean, I, I don't know what percentage this is, but like a significant percentage of content online uh, is is people commenting on other people's comments, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and in one sense, that is, you know, that, that's a fantastic thing um, that, that many of us are, have that ability to be able to do that now uh, that's been enabled by the technology. But it, it does... I, I do wonder if it does sort of just heat these things up uh, in a way and maybe actually uh, plays into the kinds of polarizations we've seen perhaps in, um, you know, in recent years politically and, and over kind of cultural issues as well. Um, but I, I wondered if you could just kind of briefly tell me about what, what the main themes you found were in your analysis of the newspapers and of the online comments and, and how those um uh, converged, diverged? Sure. So um, the major themes, I think, um, for anyone who's been sort of paying attention to the drug policy debate and conversation, um, probably won't be too surprising when it comes to newspapers. And specifically in newspapers, I, I really tried to focus on what are the arguments, 
the specific narratives and talking points and claims or, you know, the frames, I guess I would say, that um, people who are arguing in favor of drug policy reform, whether that's decriminalization or, um, you know, taking a more public health approach to drug policy, what are the types of claims that they're making in order to make that argument? Um, so the, the, the first most common one that I, I saw was um, basically arguing that the war on drugs is dysfunctional, you know, that it doesn't achieve its goals, really using sort of a classic, like, a Mertonian, I guess, uh, sort of conception of, of what makes institutions functional or dysfunctional. You know, people oftentimes would argue that it uh, creates crime, that it has perverse incentives by um, having a black market, um, that it has failed to actually maybe address uh, root causes. Um, but the overall, um, that was the most common uh, one. Um, and uh, the second most common is one that I think also people are very familiar with, which is just overall arguments about freedom and justice. So the idea that, um, you know, the war on drugs or, or punitive drug policies are violating civil liberties, that it was um, leading to issues like corruption and greed in society, that it was a catalyst for uh, the militarization of the police, that it was overall sort of um, violating people's human rights, um, or that there was some type of vague sense of inequality, whether it related to power or money, um, that related that really connected or mapped onto who was being uh, targeted. Um, so that was the second most common one, and this would tend to be sort of generic frames. Um, so, for instance, even though there's so much research and evidence that the war on drugs and its implementation, its policy, and I detail much of this history and evidence in the book, uh, is deeply racialized, deeply interconnected with systems of, of white supremacy and racial oppression that um, oftentimes these were kind of colorblind claims, so to speak. The third one, I think, is another one that is very familiar to uh, people who've had these conversations is sort of a fiscal framing of it. Um, that it's bad for the economy, that it's a waste of money, that it's too expensive, that there are these lucrative um, sort of industries that are being suppressed, whether it is the legal cannabis industry itself, whether it is, um, you know, the potential productivity loss to the economy, um, you know, these these sort of broadly almost like libertarian economic arguments, um, the ideas about, you know, sort of the waste of tax money versus bringing in tax revenue. Um, and one of the things that I think, you know, is most surprising and really um, led to a lot of the introspection that I took on, uh, because this kind of contrasted with my expectations, um, was that the least common frame was broadly making claims in newspapers about racial unfairness. The majority of these claims were talking about sort of racially biased outcomes, um, in, in terms of drug arrest and drug incarceration, um, oftentimes there wasn't a deep discussion of the mechanisms that may have created those outcomes. Um, even though there's a lot of really good hard evidence about those mechanisms, whether it's discrimination, targeting, power imbalances, the way that certain laws are enforced, um, you know, there's a pretty clear uh, understanding and consensus among people who uh, pay close attention to that evidence um, about how this works. Um, but oftentimes it was just about a mere sort of observation that the war on drugs or drug po punitive drug policy is, is happens to be impacting uh, black and, and Latinx communities more than white communities in the United States uh, in terms of incarceration and arrests. Um, so those are the kind of the two things that I think were, were interesting. And I also wanted to point out, um, one thing that, that was also quite fascinating was that 
alongside this major frame, the functionalism frame, we oftentimes hear things like, okay, the war on drugs has failed. And The Onion, a famous satirical newspaper in the United States, even came out with a headline that said that they were basically declaring drugs as the winner of the war on drugs. Drugs have won the war on drugs. You know, kind of this classic satirical take. One of the things that that I noticed really coming through in these arguments is that they mirrored a lot of the language um, of racialized moral panics about the idea that the majority of the crime and the majority of the drug selling, the majority of of the drug-related violence that's connected to the war on drugs and particularly the um, illicit market is that it was – Sort of through coded language, it was often and can pretty consistently implied that this was much more about uh, urban gangs or migrant uh, drug smugglers, um, foreign people, terrorist organizations that are, are tied to, you know, um, Middle Eastern countries or uh, drug cartels uh, in, in South America um and in all of this language kind of racializes the idea of who are the criminals what is the threat um it ends up being depicted in this very deeply racialized lens that connects this idea of of crime and violence to communities of color um and so oftentimes you know we think about this idea of like okay the failed drug war the war on drugs has failed and you know, I really started as I combed through these themes and started to see the connections that were being made through this this language of racialization. It seems as though some of the broader claims um, are meant to appeal to sort of a white racial frame that what the war on drugs is actually failing to do is properly engage in racialized social control of populations that are deemed, you know, threatening or dangerous um, to middle-class white communities, uh, which is ironic because the, the history of, you know, drug policies um, have oftentimes relied on these very similar kinds of claims to argue that certain drugs are dangerous by associating them with uh, racialized fears around different racial and ethnic groups. Um, so I thought that was really fascinating. It was something that obviously hadn't occurred to me before um, before I, I, I really engaged in this. Um, and then, you know, that's where I think it was particularly helpful for me to look at some of the comments. Um, and obviously, it's a little bit harder to generalize uh, comments because, as you mentioned, like, there are so many trillions of of internet comments being generated constantly you know i i probably posted on twitter already this morning as i was drinking my coffee like a lot of people so you know it's just exponential but i wanted to at least understand basically how is it that people respond to these types of critiques you know so i specifically tried to focus on articles that uh where where digitized newspapers that were making uh, certain types of critiques or reporting on potential downsides or issues of of the war on drugs and just looking at these comment sections to try to understand how audiences are interpreting and responding to them. What I noticed is that there were a lot of of similarities. First of all, um, this functionalism frame that I mentioned before was easily the most common. The, uh, you know, it followed a very similar pattern in a certain sense. The freedom and justice frame, overall sort of colorblind arguments about social class or corruption or, you know, violating uh, civil liberties um, was also extremely common. Uh, The fiscal frame had about a a similar rate. Um, I noticed that the argument of racial unfairness was slightly more common but um, it took on some pretty specific sort of um, nodes. And then one of the things that I noticed is that I also was trying to, to uh, capture sort of what is the response that is critical of these claims that are being made. Um, 
of this? You know, what is a, a critical decoding of these critiques look like? Um, and so some of the things that I found were overt racialized victim blaming that uh, were pretty common in these comment sections as sort of a, a defense or critique of uh, either commenters or news media content itself uh, pointing out racial unfairness or racial bias. Arguments that attempted to reinscribe the myth that um, there is a unique criminality or pathology to groups of color that accounts for um, different rates of criminalization. Um, an overall sort of denial of racism and racial oppression. Um, and I think, you know, folks that are familiar with um, sort of the, the research on, let's say, colorblind racism that's come out of the, the United States will probably be somewhat familiar with some of these ways of contesting claims that, that racism is taking place that uh, sort of uh, take shape in sort of our, our modern uh, neoliberal societies. Um, and one of the things that I also thought was really interesting um, on top of that is that comment sections are fascinating in the sense that, uh, yes, they are curated, and that's something that I try to keep in mind. They, they have content moderation that takes place oftentimes to weed out sort of really overt hate speech, although that's somewhat inconsistent from platform to platform. But the claims about the dysfunction of the war on drugs were so much more overtly racialized um, in this way. About a quarter of all of the claims that use this frame of the war on drugs being dysfunctional actually overtly uh, stated that there was some type of racialized uh, threat, that there was a group of people of color who that was dangerous or threatening, and this was one of the reasons why the war on drugs is dysfunctional, because it didn't engage in adequate social control. So it was much more overt language being used. And so by connecting these, it really allowed me to understand, first of all, how do audiences respond to different types of claims? Um, Second of all, why is it that certain types of arguments are more or less common um, in the media? Why, you know, what what are some of the, the ways of framing uh, drug policy reform arguments that seem to um, avoid the, some of these uh, more sticky or controversial issues like um, claims of, of racial oppression and injustice? And on top of that, it allowed me to kind of understand, you know, there are these arguments and understandings that are kind of floating around in the conversation. They're not going to be articulated as overtly in something that's printed in a newspaper. But we can see how that common logic is being expressed in much more bleak and overt terms by Internet commenters. Um, so that was definitely a big part of it. It also allowed me to look at how commenters as you mentioned, and I think this is a really important uh, part of the book, is that through through what I call sort of the heat of the debate, and originally I almost titled one of my chapters Identities Forged in the Fires of Debate, but I think that came off a little too uh, dramatic. But um, oftentimes commenters were making claims that weren't simply about the issues themselves and sort of adjudicating um, you know, the best available evidence or, or, you know, making reasoned arguments. Um, but there were actually claims that were much broader that were about sort of uh, political ideologies, um, you know, politicized and racialized worldviews about how the world works and ontological arguments that were connected to identity about what it means to belong to a particular racial category and defending certain um, ideas about, for instance, what it means to be a white person or what it means to be a black person. Um, and, and a lot of that contestation really did end up being about using these discussions about a, a broad racialized social issue to actually sort of um, engage in these identity contestations, engage in these uh, discussions that are actually much more about racial and political identity. So that's really that's really fascinating. All of that is really fascinating. But 
And I think particularly the, the, this issue about identity, which is really important part of the book, central to the book, really, I think. And is it would you say is that to some extent um, these kind of commenters are using using these discourses, these debates almost as a kind of a resource for constructing their identity or, or, or as, a, as a route to 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 forming identity or, or, or to communicate their identity? Yeah, I mean, I think that is, I think it's somewhere along those lines of, of articulating and, and perhaps even re, re-inscribing or re-articulating. I mean, you know, one of the issues with using language like identity construction that I've noticed is that people sometimes misunderstand that it means people aren't already carrying identities with them sure. um, into a conversation. But the way that I look at it is, that identity is obviously an, an ongoing process of articulation, um, you know, drawing on sort of this, these insights from cultural studies and symbolic interactionism about, about the self, about, you know, the, the um, ways identities are kind of not fixed, but are continuously being negotiated. Um, and so I would say that a lot of that uh, really came through. And I think it's something that is not super difficult to observe in uh, online discourse to this very day that um, oftentimes uh, conversations that pretend to be about a broad issue and and conversations that pretend to be about sort of, um, you know, what's the best societal solution to solving an issue or what is the the root cause or, you know, what's at stake? Why does this issue matter? Um, oftentimes do devolve or they have this really deep component of because I am a part of this political or social identity category, this is um, – Therefore, my worldview, this is the worldview that I'm going to defend and that that ultimately the the discussion ends up being sort of about defining the self in contrast to the other. So think about how many things, for instance, get framed in terms of left versus right. I think this is like a classic. Whenever you have a binary, it's really easy to do this. Um, And then and that part of it, the idea that. you know, that that identity, that political or social identity is the the important thing Um, and and that it needs to be reinscribed, I think, makes our conversations oftentimes more difficult. It it, it sometimes opens up less space for actual empirical evidence or consensus building to take place. Now, this isn't to say that I'm um, in the camp. Uh, far from it, of people who would deride, quote-unquote, um, identity politics, which I think oftentimes gets used as a misnomer. The actual concept of identity politics comes out of sort of the black feminist tradition in the United States and really important community organizing and, and consciousness raising that I think people, you know, that I'm saying, okay, let's all just ignore that we have these social and political identities and that we can somehow bracket them and that'll make things better. I don't necessarily uh, think that's the case either, but I think it is fascinating that so much of our narratives about how the world works kind of tend to flow from um sort of defending a particular identity rather than allowing that identity to sort of be open and and fluid and kind of just engaging with discussions and and information as it comes in. Um, And I think that's particularly fascinating. And once again, I think I think you can really see it when it comes to the way that in the United States we have such a bipartisan sort of model of politics that's much less pluralistic than other countries so, so many policy debates end up being about the moral supremacy and the intellectual supremacy of one particular political party over the other, um, which obviously is constricting these conversations of complex social issues down to perhaps the least useful and least effective parts, but they are obviously fulfilling some type of role 
um, for people in, in the construction of their identity and the ability to position themselves as moral and rational uh, and, and as part of sort of the best possible collectivities. Um, it also, I think, one of the things that that can also do that's really damaging to a debate about something like policy is that it makes it so that if there is some a, a seeming consensus among the elites within a given political party, those tend to be defended um, pretty strongly, even by reformers. So even when we have sort of a, a liberal uh, consensus about drug policy that doesn't really get at the root of some of these structural issues that have to do with power, inequality, resource imbalances, but tend to kind of uh, merge maybe like the overall liberal argument of sort of like freedom and, um, you know, liberty and maybe combining it with some libertarian arguments about sort of uh, tax revenue and economics. Um, people who consider themselves sort of liberal on drug issues will take that position and commentators in the media will see that as sort of like, okay, that's the that's the the drug reform position that is dominant. Um, but when you actually look into what's taken place with the war on drugs and drug prohibition, it's much more deeply tied to things like structural racism that that lens doesn't even have a good language for or a good way of setting that agenda and discussing it. So um, I think that this this focus on on uh, these social and political identities and what they mean um, you know, it has some really interesting uh, impacts on how we have conversations that we're often not conscious of. Yeah, I think that's such an important, um, such an important point, uh, because, uh, as you said, I mean, there's this kind of I, there's this idea or this ideal rather that, you know, that we could have some kind of um, just reasoned, rational debate um, and then, you know, uh, reach some kind of consensus between us through that kind of process. And that doesn't seem to be the experience of, uh, of most kind of discussions uh, people have online. And I think understanding, um, not criticising, but as you said, but understanding the relationship that the expression of these ideas has um, with people's identity is really important in tackling that kind of issue. Because if someone's quite emotionally um, wedded to certain ideas as part of their identity, as many people are on all sides of the political uh, kind of spectrum or all uh, areas of the political spectrum, then it can be hard to give that up, even if you even if that might be the you know, the, the logical, rational, rational thing to do. Um, and kind of on that point, I just wondered if. Given your kind of deep uh, analysis of these things, to what extent do you think it is possible to kind of reach some kind of consensus or even just a kind of a, a small kind of shift in in kind of thinking towards you know bringing people together through these kinds of comment threads? Uh, is that something that that's that is kind of uh, achievable um, or are people just talking at cross purposes or even are they just talk, you know, aligning themselves with the political kind of position of that? that newspaper or that platform that they're, that they're talking on? I mean, that's a really good question. And I think um, this is the big kind of question when it comes to digital media that I think, you know, uh, a lot of people grapple with. I think that we are presented uh, interactive digital media as sort of this great democratizing, freeing, uh, force. I think that's definitely how it was sort of sold in terms of the digital revolution. Everyone's going to be able to comment. Everyone will be able to be part of this conversation, you know, and even um, large tech companies love to present this idea of sort of, you know, tech utopia where it's like we're just bringing people together and we're just having we're just facilitating conversations and you know, we're making the world a better place. Obviously, anyone who, um, you know, studies these issues is going to raise an eyebrow at that because, you know, there there is no uh, perfect panacea. There's no, you know, perfect solution. Um, 
to, you know, any of this stuff. Particularly, I think there are a few things that really make it so that this goes awry. Uh, the first one is obviously that these systems, these, these digital platforms are operating, um, under the broader, um, forces of capitalism, which means that there's going to be tons and tons of perverse incentives to um, erode the quality of the conversation, the quality of the discourse, the quality of the connections, um, or even to, um, you know, create further alienation if it is profitable. Um, and we can see this with the sort of issues around radical right-wing extremism on YouTube, for instance, where, um, you know, the, the YouTube algorithm has, uh, you know, over the past five years sort of drastically, uh, you know, encouraged viewers who are watching maybe uh, center-right or mildly conspiratorial content. Um, if they just simply keep watching, it will show them more and more extreme content because it's what keeps people glued to the screen. Or whether it's the way that, that algorithms on large social media platforms show people things that they know that they will engage with in a way that really segregates communities, not only politically, you know, and, and there's obviously a lot of discussion around sort of like the uh, the bubble that people can find themselves in. But even in terms of racially, the Internet is a racially segregated place. So if you are a white person, for instance, according to the, the, the recent survey data that I was that I was looking at while um, writing this book, you are extremely unlikely unless you go way out of your way um, to engage with information that is critical of racism and racial oppression. And so what this actually does is it makes it so that people, um, particularly dominant groups, are oftentimes getting a narrative put back at them that is reinforcing what they already believe to be true. Um, and I think that can obviously have some really pernicious effects. All of these things can, because ultimately what ends up being monetized uh, on the Internet is anything that garters attention. And I think a lot of us can probably relate to that sort of experience. If you've ever gotten into an argument on the Internet, you know this sort of brain chemistry that goes along with it where you feel compelled to respond. You feel compelled to, oh, my God, i got to defend my point. i got to get back in there. Um, whether or not that's good for society, that addictive quality is absolutely good for uh, tech company CEOs, for the people who are able to monetize that interaction. So I think one of the things that we need to think about is – the broader structural issues that are shaping this discourse, whether we want to decide, you know, is it good or not, or is it potentially uh, liberating or constraining? I think what's important to do is, is think about, you know, what are the things that are being rewarded um, and how is that influencing our discourse and how can we sort of uh, change the way that we communicate, the platforms, um, all of those things, how it's regulated, um, so that it can be a more potentially accountable democratic space. And obviously, I think that comes along with um, addressing the, the immense power and capital uh, concentrations that, that shape uh, media corporations. So, Media consolidation, for instance, means that there is a lot less diversity in terms of who's shaping the algorithms. And it means there's a lot less uh, diversity in terms of the types of people's lived experiences that go into the assumptions that um, are patterning these larger systems. Um, as well as, obviously, this really pernicious profit incentive where tech companies are very uh, willing to profit off of controversy, misinformation, um, 
in many ways, you know, violence. Um, as long as it is as the return on investment is slightly higher than maybe what they might lose in terms of public, uh, you know, accountability. Um, and obviously, when platforms get large enough, they tend to be almost beyond uh, accountability. So, I think those are some of the major issues: the the, the racial segregation of spaces like the internet, how that's facilitated by the larger system of, of, of neoliberal tech capitalism with, with sort of these giant corporations setting the stage. Um, and I think if we start from that broader structural approach, then we can start thinking about, okay, what would make a healthier space? Because I, I, I think it's not controversial to say that I don't think that that social media and interactive commenting is necessarily going anywhere. Um, I think it's become such a embedded part of our everyday lives. We're so deeply saturated with it that um, I think it's unrealistic to say that we're going to, you know, go to uh, revert back to an earlier format or, or something. But I really think that from a policy perspective, it's important to think about um, how there can be greater accountability and how we can reduce the pernicious impact of uh, neoliberal capitalism and, and large uh, power and capital concentrations from, from distorting these conversations. Yeah, those, uh, the, the emphasis on those broader structural um, and, uh, you know, kind of political economic issues is, is, is absolutely, um, uh, absolutely really important here. I think I totally agree. And, well, this kind of really made me think about just as you were speaking then as well is that um, we do know that things can be done about this on that on that kind of level. And what I was thinking about um, is it, this is in a slightly with a slightly different focus, but uh, Safia Noble's work um, mm-hmm. on kind of you know racist algorithms and things like this. And many people will be familiar with her work, but she looked at how um, the kind of the Google's algorithms. Uh, throw up particular kind of search results and particular images if you search for particular things. Her, her um, work particularly looked at, you know, searching for black girls and, and you get a very sexualized and kind of uh, kind of racialized, uh, uh, particular kind of racialized images. Um, and uh, some platforms such as Google have changed that to some extent now. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that they're totally kind of perfect now, but they have they have made some changes partly because of that kind of work. But initially, they just sort of threw their hands up and said, well, it's just one of those things, isn't it? It's just how it, it's just how the kind of the, the dice roll. Um, uh, but then they have acknowledged that there are things that they can do. Of course, they can do much, much more. But that kind of um, that kind of intervention is is possible, you know, mm-hmm. in order for to, to, to tackle some of the things you were talking about, that, you know, that you tend to get these these certain kinds of discourses presented to you rather than the, you know, the more structural things that you were saying uh, are really important, and what that made me think about in in in, in your book as well is is this notion of counterframing. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I hope you can tell me a bit more about that in a second. But what that made me think about was um, in your book, you're kind of talking about the, the kind of discursive counterframing of commenters. But there's maybe a connection to be made there with the sort of the framing or or counterframing of um, of the actual platforms themselves. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously indebted to uh, scholars like uh, Sophia Noble and Ruha Benjamin, who have really, I think, pushed back against the idea that tech is either this sort of impersonal force that, like, you know, the algorithm is just this uh, objective thing that's, like, running everything and making things better, and it's perfectly rational and reasonable, um, and really looking at, like, what are the subjective inputs? What's the information? What's the data that uh, algorithms are, are taking in? And how does that reflect our, uh, you know, the, the broader biases and controlling images in society? That's really important. The counterframing about those platforms that you're talking about, I think, is increasingly happening among uh, activists and scholars who are trying to push back against um, the ideas that that artificial intelligence algorithms and all of these other types of things are these sort of like objective of things that are outside of human control. And even platforms like YouTube or Twitter 
um, often talks about their own algorithms as though it's like some type of of impenetrable outside force that just kind of operates. Uh, it's like it's something supernatural, or yeah, yeah. Exactly, it's something supernatural. It's something that you know. It's the same way that a lot of uh, sort of people will talk about the economy. You know, the, as though it's not a human construction, as though it's not sort of a set of relationships, and something that um, obviously is shaped by the broader dynamics of society. You know that hey, there's just these economic upturns and downturns, and they just happen to affect people in different ways. And, you know, we have to pray at the altar of the economy. We see a very similar type of logic being put on uh, algorithms and digital media. The idea of, of virality, I think, even more so has amplified the way that people think about this. You know, is that like, hey, if I just do and say the right things... Um, you know, if I if I happen to comment in a certain way or talk in a certain way or, or discuss a certain issue or get in on this like hot take that um, that's going to make it so that I can personally get more attention and potentially monetize that. Um, so, yeah, it absolutely is something that we need to demystify and that we need to reframe or, or perhaps have counter narratives and counter frames about none of this being natural, none of this being beyond uh, human action and order. And, you know, I think about, for instance, you know, just just questioning some of the underlying assumptions. I think Sophia Noble gives such a great example when she's talking about, you know, towards the end of her book, um, basically about how this influences even things like patterns of class and racial segregation. So... You know, if you were to Google uh, what are the best schools in a certain neighborhood, it's going to bring up the predominantly white, uh, predominantly wealthy neighborhoods. And Google is interpreting good in, in a particular way because of that, um, because they, they have this uh, assumption that that's what you're looking for, um, that that's what it means for something to be a good neighborhood or a good school. So one of the things that needs to happen is that, yeah, more activism and scholarship, both inside and outside of these tech companies, need to fight for further accountability and further uh, media literacy when it comes to even how we think about this stuff and, and how we engage with it ourselves. Um, I think that's that's really crucial, and I think the work that's being done right now, particularly from uh, black feminist scholars has been really amazing. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I don't really get into algorithms in the book as much as I really could. But even one of the things that I do talk in, about in the book that I think is, is particularly terrifying is the role that algorithms play in the United States in um, the system of arrest and incarceration. So even police forces... Um, parole agencies are using algorithms and different sort of software to quote unquote objectively determine who is a potential threat, whether that's in terms of identifying like the neighborhoods that, uh, need to be more greatly surveilled and targeted, which obviously ha- just so happen to be marginalized communities. Or whether it's assessing whether or not someone is more or less of a risk for, um, you know, a flight risk and whether or not they need to be kept in some type of pretrial detention. Um, so whether or not someone's allowed to get bail and um, before they're even, you know, in a courtroom, um, you know, facing a judge, um, these algorithms are assessing based off of, you know, things that oftentimes serve as proxies for race and class, um, whether or not they're a danger to themselves and others. Um, and, and this continues to be used um, despite a lot of criticism. So I think just pushing back uh, against the idea that algorithms are neutral and that, you know, these, these processes are neutral uh, or even that their objective is really crucial. And, you know, I'm, I'm deeply, uh, grateful to all the people that are doing the work to really expose that. There's such important research being done, um, to, to actually try to get at 
the impact that, that these algorithms are having on communities and even to just deconstruct the assumptions that are fed into them. And, um, you know, I think that the best thing we can do is understand these outcomes as a pro- as a product of systems of oppression, as a product of uh, biases and, and discriminatory mechanisms, um, because there is an assumption that you can point to outcomes in things like, um, you know, income, jobs, you know, any type of inequality. And someone can say, well, you know, the system is this objective sort of rational neutral force. This really just reflects differences in, you know, groups, uh, you know, uh, criminality, laziness, intelligence. Um, and you can see that, you know, this is obviously a longstanding discourse for justifying inequalities, but it, it absolutely uh, takes on new dimensions in the tech world that, uh, yeah, I think it's it's so crucial to pay attention to. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that, absolutely, especially, you know, building on all, all that incredible work that's being done. But I think that what that really makes me think about and highlights um, is actually the, the value of, of, of what you've done here as well, which is that, um, of course, all of the, the, the sort of the discourse that you're analysing in this book and uh, and seeking to understand is also actually feeding, you know, feeding all those kind of um, those algorithms uh, as well. Um, uh, and in terms of what gets engagement, what kinds of things are kind of are said online and that kind of thing. But just to kind of finish up, I, I wonder if you could tell us a bit about what kind of impacts you think um, these conversations online are having. Uh, you know, do, do they feed? Do you think that they feed in in some direct or indirect way into policy? Absolutely. I think um, you know this is the big question, and and. Uh, there's a few different ways that I think about this. One is sort of like um, the connection between, as you mentioned, these discourses and narratives and, and real world outcomes that are being reproduced through them. Um, so we have some really, you know, interesting examples. Uh, so, for instance, one uh, that I discuss uh, in the book is that there is sort of a racial empathy gap that comes through in this debate. Um, that means that um, even though uh, whites or people of European origin ten- actually are the uh, most common group to use and sell uh, and transport drugs, um, the depiction of people of color as being the primary face of this social problem or this issue um, has really shaped, obviously, a lot of the police response to the war on drugs. So there's, for instance, there's a lot of evidence that the uh, media depictions of drug crimes, quote unquote, even has an impact of biasing police officers. And even further, you know, there's this connection of thinking about how empathy plays a really strong role in things like uh, ju- the judicial system and um, legal legal court cases and the idea of whether or not um, juries and judges and the general public can experience and feel empathy towards someone who's being accused of of a crime um, absolutely impacts their outcomes in terms of of how harshly they're treated um, and so these narratives that really um, attempt to depict um, people of color as a threat and depict white uh, people as sort of these innocent sort of um, people who are perhaps making a mistake or being victimized somehow by the criminal justice system. Um, you know, these two different narratives that we have around racialized groups of people who are impacted by uh, drug use and potentially impacted by the legal system that's absolutely shaping outcomes. That's absolutely shaping uh, how people experience and navigate these these uh, systems. So I think that real-world example is very uh, easy to notice. I think another one is just looking at how it's shaped sort of the uh, possibilities that people can imagine. So I mentioned earlier in our conversation that sort of um, – 
the focus on, uh, you know, identity and, and, and the ontological reinvestment in certain identities obviously limits the debate. But there's also a sense, um, you know, and, and, and I, you know, I'm indebted to, to Stuart Hall and his work in police, uh, policing the crisis where he talks about that the media oftentimes assumes like a, a pre, uh, you know, pre-existing consensus of what most readers know and think and, and care about that, that is really capable of limiting the types of reform possibilities that, um, the public even thinks of as possible. So one of the outcomes that I think is deeply tied to that is that in the majority of places that have legalized cannabis, for instance, they have really failed to incorporate any type of mechanism or element that addresses the underlying racial inequities and underlying impacts and harms of the war on drugs on specific communities, um, as well as even sort of, um, you know, when we think about this massive, sprawling legal cannabis industry that's blowing up uh, all in places where um, cannabis is legalized, um, this is an extremely white-dominated industry, despite the fact that, um, you know, it comes out of this history and legacy of um, racialized groups, uh, black and Latinx communities being deeply harmed and being deeply targeted. Um, and as well as even spaces where there are minor infractions that can be enforced um, around drug policies, even in places where reforms have taken place, those are still enforced in an extremely racially biased and targeted way. So things like underage consumption of cannabis or, or public smoking bans or even, you know, the idea that um, people who rely on certain services uh, like public housing may still not be able to access and use cannabis because of how regulated their lives are. So the racial silence that I identify in the book that pervaded this debate has really um, limited a lot of policy reformers and a lot of a lot of policy reform efforts at actually getting at um, any of the racial injustices that really correspond with and are part and parcel of drug prohibition. And I think one of the major implications of this is then that groups that are advocating for drug policy reforms. Individuals who are engaging in these discussions with friends and family members, people who are passionate about this topic, need to, rather than trying to do sort of uh, frame alignment, which I think has been the approach that's oftentimes been taken, where um, advocates will think about, okay, well, we know that these are the dominant ways this issue gets framed. How can I make my argument in a way that doesn't challenge those dominant framings, but rather kind of aligns with it so we can have this appearance of the consensus, even if this means I'm giving up certain areas of terrain? Um, that obviously is deeply ineffective at getting real, real radical reforms passed that actually address the root causes of, of social suffering tied to the war on drugs. And so what I really want to um, encourage and advocate for is that people who are active in these discussions can engage in counterframing. They can engage in counter narratives. They can um, try to rearticulate those observations that I think, you know, people make, the, the racialized outcomes, things like that, rearticulate them in a way that is explaining those same outcomes, but doing so from a critical perspective. That, that actually then opens up the conversation to much more radical and critical alternatives. So one example of this, for instance, um, in New York, uh, cannabis was recently legalized. And uh, this was actually very strange because when I received my book in the mail for the first time was on the same exact day uh, that New York had legalized cannabis. So it was a very strange kind of synchronicity. But... There is an amazing community of, of activists, particularly coming from uh, marginalized communities, representing communities of color that have been so deeply harmed and disadvantaged by particularly, you know, the, the NYPD and its human rights abuses um, and its uh, 
reproduction of, of racial uh, injustice. And it's really harmful and violent policing practices that have been able to make themselves really loud voices and loud advocates in the drug policy debate here in a way that's made it so that the reforms that actually happen centered on things like racial equity, like redistributing the tax revenue that's collected from the legal cannabis industry to marginalized and disadvantaged communities, for instance, or making sure that minor infractions related to cannabis use are not enforced. So, for instance, um, you know, it's really not uncommon to walk around. You know, I live I live in uh, New York City. I live in Brooklyn. And it's not uncommon to see people walking their dogs, walking down the street, um, you know, smoking cannabis or, or using a vaporizer. Um, and what that means is that there's even less space for um, targeted and racialized enforcement to take place of something that we've all now just agreed is an acceptable legal activity. So, you know, it's not simply about just identifying the limitations, but once you identify those limitations, you can really push back and rearticulate and reframe the conversation. And I think that's kind of the big thing that I want readers to get from the book. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Michael, it's been so great to talk to you and uh, for you to kind of uh, share some of your research with us. Um, as I said before, I, you know, I, I highly recommend this book. It's a really great read and uh, eye-opening uh, for me as well. So, um, yeah, once again, uh, thanks for coming to talk to us and um, uh, thanks for, uh, thanks for uh, speaking to us again. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you know, big fan of the podcast and, awesome. uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. So thank you. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Bye then. Okay. I hope you enjoyed that chat with Michael um, and there'll be uh, links up on my blog and in the podcast description to, um, uh, where you can find out more about Michael's work and, um, and how to get hold of his book. Uh, as I said at the start, this will be the last episode for a little while, um, but you can uh, find episodes of my new um, new series of my other podcast, the Social Theory Podcast, by searching on your podcast apps uh, as well. So hopefully we'll be back with some more episodes in the future, but in the meantime, farewell for now. <laughs>